Welcome to the Depollution Podcast from Salvage Wire. In this podcast, we interview interesting and inspiring leaders to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and vehicle recycling industries, along with other leaders who can challenge and inspire the whole industry. In this episode, we welcome David Cresswell of Auto Body Professionals Club. The ABP has been running for a considerable number of years and is a major success in the collision repair industry. David is also well known within the industry, having worked in many different parts of the industry over previous years. This interview, this conversation is going to be inspiring and challenging in the same measure. Let's get straight into my conversation with David. David, welcome to the Deep Pollution Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to uh, be part of this. Just as a way of introduction, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your career, who you've worked for and your current role? Wow, what a big title opening. Thank you, Andy. Um, very good to be on, on board with your podcast and uh, thank you for the welcome. Um, so, yeah, David Cresswell, I've been in the car industry since university. Um, in fact, I was sponsored at university by a large fleet uh, uh, at the time called Thorn Electrical Industries. Um, I've been in our part of, I worked for various car manufacturers, I should have said, um, uh, Alfa Romeo, Peugeot Citroën and uh, Austin Rover. And I left Austin Rover in 1988 to join the fledgling Audatex in the UK. Uh, I was deputy MD there from when it started uh, in 1988 until 1998. And that was a heady, great days of introducing a, a computerized estimating to the market, something that didn't exist before. Um, and we had competition of glassmatics and our system in theory was the uh, uh, second system because we were an online system and, and online wasn't good in those days and we had manufacturers data rather than Thatcham data. So we had some great tussles, but eventually we won through and um, had amazing days of doing road shows with, with uh, repairers having to queue up to sign their orders for the system if they wanted to continue as an approved repairer for Eagle Star or, or Cornhill as it was was then or, or not even your old business uh, um, Norwich Union um, Aviva now of course. Um, in 1988 I, I, after 10 years we got 85% of the market and uh, I left and joined uh, a company called Miller Fisher. We had Fisher Motor Engineers which is the largest firm of independent engineers in the country so I had 100 guys in cars running around the country inspecting damaged cars on behalf of insurers and brokers and accident management companies. I uh, did that for five years. The parent company um, went bust. The loss adjusting company went bust. My bit was the bit that made the money um, and it got sold to a company called Rubicon. Um, I did a deal for staying there for six months and then uh, left and set up ABP Club in 2004. And still there, 11 and a half, uh, um, 15 years later, I should say, sorry. Um, so ABP Club Auto Body Professionals Club, it's a club for people involved in the collision repair industry. So we have two and a half thousand members. Half our members are the body shops and the other half are uh, accident management companies, insurance companies, paint companies, parts suppliers, paint distributors, vehicle manufacturers, you name it, they're, they're, they're a body. So we have virtually every one of the top 50 body shop groups, uh, all of the top 10 motor insurers, um, nearly all of the top 20 paint distributors, etc., paint companies as, as members. And we're really about communication um, is number one that we do. We um, 
provide a daily newsletter that goes out to all two and a half thousand members at three o'clock and many of them are waiting for the inbox to ping as that arrives because it tells them everything that's gone on in the industry in the previous 24 hours and that's not just body repair because it's the whole body repair industry it's what's happened in the uh, motor insurance world in the in the vehicle manufacturing world that will affect um, car bodies so that's the communication and then we have community is the second part of our mantra where we do um, big meetings we do the british body shop awards which is now the largest event for the body shop industry in the world we had 962 people at last year's mm. awards event and uh, a night of nights um, event combined with a convention that has about 750 people at. so it's now the second largest event for the body shop industry in the world so very proud of those those two facts wow that's incredible and you, know, you look at those 15 years, you look at what you've done in those 15 years and how you've changed the industry in those 15 years. Uh, you must be rightly proud of, of, of what you've achieved. I'm very proud indeed. Thank you, Andy. And the thing I, I, I like most of all is that we've brought together all sides of the industry. Um, when I started a, ABP, I didn't want it to be a repairers club, a, a repairers trade association with oh, poor repairer and wicked insurers, because there's fault on both sides, undoubtedly. And what was clear to me uh, was both parties absolutely need each other. An insurer has to have a repair solution in this country. In this country, Mrs. Latham, when she pranks her car, does not want to be said, well, sorry about that, Mrs. Latham, here's £1,500, go and get your car repaired. She wants her car repaired. She doesn't know where the nearest body shop is. She's not interested. Statistically, she has an accident every 10 years. All she wants, I pay fully comprehensive insurance and I want my car repaired, sort it out, Mr. Insurance Company. So the insurance company has to have a repair network that can satisfy that. And on the other hand, the repairers have to recognize that for nearly all of them, insurance is the, their biggest customer. Mm. Um, and whilst one can say there's analogies one can draw between um, farmers and the supermarkets, a few, many farmers and few supermarkets, many repairers and, and few in, in insurers, um, I think you have to find a state of equilibrium where, where both parties can exist with what's being offered and what's being paid. Some will always say that it's unfair on the side of the insurers or unfair on the side of the farmers, but on the other hand, they signed the contracts. So yeah. I, I, what I just wanted to do was to get all the parties talking with each other. Mm. Now, over the years, and, and, and I know I've been in the industry you know, you know, myself for, for many, many years, but the volume of, of collision repair centres over the years has significantly reduced. Uh, and you know, yet you know, we still hear, hear reports about the viability of these repairers being very suspect um labor rates are are are, are low um when compared to a franchised center um you know what can you say about the problems that the collision repair centers are facing in general regarding low labor rates viability um you know and 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 all of the all of the charges all of the the discounts that they've got to give to insurance um insurance companies you know what can we do to to stop arrest this decline in, in volume of repair centers and also make them a little bit more profitable so they can reinvest in the industry i think one has to good question i'm going to talk pre pre uh, coronavirus because not none of us know how, how we're going to come out what's going to look like that um 
what we have, have seen, you're absolutely right, is a big decline in the number of repair centres that was particularly went down an awful lot in the 90s and the early 2000s. It's gone down from our numbers from about 4,800 in 2009 to 3,600 in 2019. So it has still gone down about 25% in 10 years. The rate of decline has slowed, um, primarily because the those that have left have got stronger and we're getting much more into a balance now of supply and demand. I has to say, frankly, before there were probably too many body shops and there were, you know, they weren't running at capacity. Prior to COVID, most body shops were running pretty close to capacity and have done for the last few years. Profitability is very marginal. You're absolutely right for body shops. Um, our latest figures showed that in 2019, they were running at an average of 5.5% profit margin. 5.4, just getting it very accurate, 5.46% profit margin, um, which is not huge. It's larger than a dealer group makes out of interest, but that's because there's so little profit on a car. And that has improved uh, every year for the last four years. It still means, however, that an average body shop only makes £99 pre-tax profit on an average £1,800 insurance job. So it's not a lot of profit, £100 on an £1,800 job, five, let's say 5.4%. With the, one of the big declines we've seen has been in the dealer-owned body shops because why would you repair a car, a, a work bay, repairing a car in it for an insurance company for £35 an hour when you can get £85 an hour for servicing the car? And the skill is a lot less involved in servicing and frankly the investment in, in uh, the equipment is a lot less in servicing. So many franchise dealer shops have closed their body shop element and I've turned it over to servicing and, outs and outsource the work to an independent. So why do body shops keep doing it? They keep doing it because it's what they love, it's what they know best, and because there's always hope it will get better. The repair body, UK body repair industry is unique in my, in my limited knowledge in that there is no main dominant player. It's, it's a three and a half to four billion pound industry. And the largest player in it nationwide has about 5% market share. The only industry of a comparable size that doesn't have a dominant player is hairdressing, which is a similar size industry. And again, there isn't a dominant player in there. We just go to our local hairdressers, or most blokes and most ladies do. Um, so we don't have a market leader in there. Different if you look particularly in the, in the States where you have a couple of large franchise businesses and they can lead more from the top. Going back to my farmers and um, uh, supermarkets analogy, you can still look and see how that applies to our industry because the insurance companies offer contracts out and repairers sign them. Yeah. And this is always a, a, a challenge because there's always someone that will do it cheaper. What I do think the insurers, the relationship between insurers and repairers has improved immensely over the last four to five years, as insurers have realized that it is now getting more of a limited resource mm -hmm. in terms of repairers. And so they've got to look after them so that they have a solution for Mrs. Latham for when she has her, her, her prank. Um, and our last, we do an annual state of the industry survey, and our last survey showed how massively the um, relationships and um, between insurers and repairers had improved in the last three to five years.
virtually every uh, repairer we surveyed said how much the relationships had improved. There's still a long way to go. And on average, we know from Alder Stats, which we, well, our tech, my old firm, which we, we, we research, the average rate's about £36.44 last year um, per hour for um, a repair job. Uh, so it's getting better, and that's gone up. If, if I look in the from ten years ago, it was twenty-four. Like two thousand three, twenty-four pounds fifteen an hour, and it was twenty-six pounds forty-four an hour last year. So it's gone up considerably, fifty percent rise uh, um, uh, there in less than ten years. But in just over ten years, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. And do you see labour rates rising significantly in the next few years? Um, because I know there's a campaign to sort of get £50 an hour or whatever, but do you see that happening? Do you see that uh, that bearing fruit in the next few years? Yes. Um, one of the questions we asked our, uh, the repairers, what do you think is a, in our last survey last year, what do you think is a fair labor rate uh, and obviously it went from 100 pounds an hour down to what they're, they're, they're getting but it averaged out at around 45 46 pounds an hour they felt was a fair rate the reality is insurers would all happily pay that if every other insurer was paying it yeah. insurance is so competitive uh, that they can't afford to one insurance company can't afford, afford to pay more than another insurance company um, but if every repairer stuck together and said, we will only work for £40 an hour, the insurers would happily all pay that, provided everybody was paying it. But what you'll always have, uh, £40 an hour, I'll do it for 38 yeah. I'll do it for 37 um, So a lot of it is, I'm not criticising repairers because it's, a, it's the same with farmers. It's a very, very competitive market. But they had... I think what we did see, the big thing we saw in our state of the, uh, of, of the industry report last year was more repairers than ever had terminated contracts with poor paying insurers, accident management companies. And poor paying isn't just the labour rate. It's the whole package that goes with it, Andy, as to um, how long they take to pay, how difficult they are to deal with. Do they have to negotiate every job with the engineer? Does the engineer argue over a 15 pence rubbing strip or something like that um so over they look at the overall or, or overall package and those that aren't working for them they terminated last year because they got most of the shops have got enough business and actually i don't want your contract anymore because you're too much hassle to deal with yeah now you mentioned when you were talking about uh, about the labor rates and whatever you mentioned that the investment in technology that the collision repair centers have to have to go into and not just the uh, technology, but also um, the the technicians and, and their training and their own their own knowledge and their expertise and the training that they need, um, because increased levels of technology around these vehicles and the complexity of the vehicle design is making the collision repair industry much much more difficult. There's you know so much more, and it's also absolutely critical to get the job right. But why? Are collision repair technicians not licensed by law? Why are they not regulated and licensed by law? In the same way, in the mechanical shop, that the guy that does your brakes isn't licensed by law, or the guy that does do ADAS alignment isn't licensed by law. When the salvage code was being uh, changed, I was part of the, uh, the team that was helping doing that. And um, we tried to get the government to ensure that um, structurally damaged vehicles were only repaired 
in a proper body shop, uh, um, either one with uh, BS10125 or that was vehicle manufacturer approved. And the government's response was, we don't see that many deaths from it. We're not interested. We're a non-red tape government. Uh, and, and you know, it's where are the bodies? That's always the answer. Um, and whilst we all know there are vehicles being badly repaired that are not working as well as they should do in the second accident, find the evidence for it, because we've tried with police forces, uh, um, coroner's courts, there's no evidence for yeah. it, because you've got a badly mangled wreck there, you don't know how it would have performed um, if it had been repaired correctly. So it's virtually impossible to find that, um, that evidence. The investment is huge for a body shop, one has to say. Um, the, the, the whole ADAS, the, the advanced driver's assistance systems, is really increasing the bills considerably for insurers and repairers. It's helping insurers at the same time, things like automatic braking and uh, blind spots, that should be and is reducing collisions, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's more costly to repair those vehicles. The sensors tend to be in the front behind the grill, which is the area that's most frequently damaged. And suddenly your cost of repair has gone up because there's a 400 pound sensor behind yeah. that front grill that wasn't there on the 2015 model car. Mm -hmm. And what's is AB is ABP doing anything around this around around the, um, the any legislation or standards or professional standards or anything like that to help collision repairers achieve and, and work on some of these complex vehicles? We were a founder of the original CAS125, which became BS10125. Um, we we sponsored it. We put money in into it, and were part of the. A team that wrote the standard and I think that's done a huge amount to improve the quality of repairers in, uh, repairers in the UK. Just under a thousand repairers now have the standard um, and many others have gone down the vehicle manufacturer route rather than the BS10125 route which I you know, fully understand if all you repair are Jaguar Land Rovers um, go down that route. Um, that, that, that has also had the effect of improving considerably the qualifications uh, um, of um, competence, I think I should say is the better word, the competence of the uh, individual guys doing the, and girls doing the repairs in the body shops. So the ATA came in via, from the IMI um, to assess the technician and accreditation to check that they were competent because someone that's done the job for 25 years isn't necessarily great at doing the job. They've got 25 years experience, doesn't mean they're great at doing the job. Um, you know, it's a combination of time and being able to prove that you've got that. And, and the word always is current competence. One of the things you just talked about, Andy, is the amazing, amazing um, increase in technology in vehicles. Um, just uh, last week, uh, the head of BMW just said our cars are now computers on wheels. Yeah. Um, and one of the things you have to have is current competence to know how to deal with those vehicles. Electric vehicles is a whole nother area um, of, of, of competence, which can be very, you know, those vehicles are very dangerous if you don't know how to use them. If you know how to make them safe, they're absolutely fine. But um, one of the things with any vehicle that's put on the road, it's gonna have a crash. Teslas are gonna have a crash. Any vehicle is gonna have a crash. They may be able to avoid having a crash, but they can't avoid someone crashing into them. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, we will come back to our conversation with David in a moment. 
as the global vehicle recycling industry faces the new post-lockdown normal, SalvageWire are hosting a webinar to support vehicle recyclers as they explore what changes the industry could embrace to its benefit. Salvage Insight is a new programme from SalvageWire and will launch with a free one-hour webinar on Wednesday the 17th of June. For more details and information, please contact SalvageWire through our website www.salvagewire.com Salvage Insight is a range of intensive management bootcamp hothouse options for business owners and managers who want to measure current value creation, create compelling customer experiences, market, promote and sell more effectively, improve profitability, manage smarter at every level of the business, determine the most effective management structure and create a strategic vision, mission statement and a new time-bound business plan. The free one-hour webinar on Wednesday the 17th of June is available to all. For more details, contact SalvageWire. Back to our conversation with David. Reclaim parts or recycle parts is a hot topic once again and it looks this time like there's a, a true desire to make it work. How can the ABP and the vehicle recyclers and the vehicle recycling industry work together to help collision repair centres and insurance companies who pay for the repairs to adjust to the use of reclaimed parts in vehicle repair? Oh, dear, what a subject. Um, it's something that's very dear to my heart. and something I've been involved with for uh, well over 10 years. Um, I've been involved in a number of pilot programmes which sadly haven't proved effective to date. We did a survey in 2015, uh, a green parts survey, um, and uh, we presented it at one of our shows and, uh, to a panel. In fact, you were one of that panel, Andy, in 2015. Yeah. And um, uh, we repeated a, a, a smaller version of that survey last year um, in our State of the Industry report. So let's look at a few facts to start start with and then look how we can improve things. So if we look at the, and, and to be honest, the, the report that we did last year was very, very similar conclusions to the one we had in 2015. So do you ever fit recycled parts? We asked and 60% of the body shops do fit recycled parts. I mean, recycled, reclaimed, green, doesn't matter what title, it's, it's, it's the same thing. And we asked them in what situations do you fit recycled parts? And 84% of those that fitted them was to avoid a total loss at the request of the policyholder. And that, is the, that was exactly the same answers we had back in 2015. And when I was at Miller Fish, I'll tell a quick little tale there. I went out on, in the first week of my job with one of the engineers and we looked at a couple's Mitsubishi Galant. They're an elderly couple in their late 60s and they'd had the car from new, it was 15 years old and it needed a bumper and a headlamp and a repair to the front wing. And it was gonna be a write-off because of the cost of a new headlamp and a new, and a new bumper. And the couple were almost in tears about it. They couldn't understand it. It was their love. They'd had it from brand new. It had done about 40,000 miles, remember, in 15 years. So I said to them, do you want the car? Yes, please, because they were going to get a grand cash for the vehicle if had been in uh, total loss. So I talked to the engineer and we found a good recycler who, who, who had the parts. And uh, this couple were ecstatic. Now, the thing that got me with that, Andy, everybody was a winner. The couple were so happy they got their car back, which is what they wanted. They didn't want the thousand pound value of the car. They wanted their car. 
the insurance company paid a total of about £600 for that repair. So they saved money instead of £1,000. The, the, the uh, body shop got a repair out of it. If it's a total loss, they wouldn't have done. And the salvage agent got a sale out of it. The only loser, if you like, was Mitsubishi, but they weren't losers because the couple are still in a Mitsubishi Galant. So you just, you, you need to explain it to couple. When, it, when we explained it to them, it wouldn't be using new parts. They didn't give a damn. Yeah. They just wanted their car back. So that, that's one example. The second most uh, um, situation they fit recycled parts, 68% was when the policy holder asks me to. And I think that's very closely linked in with saving a total loss. 63% use recycled parts when the new part is no longer available. 60% when the work provider asks me to. 50% to avoid a total loss at the request of the work provider. And 46% when the new part is not available in a reasonable time scale. Mm -hmm. I.e. it's a six-week backlog, something like that. So those are the reasons last year that body shops, and this is well over 200 body shops, said they do fit recycled parts. So let me ask, well, if you don't fit recycled parts, why not? 45% said policyholder resistance. The owner of the car didn't want recycled parts fitted. And that is because we've got a historic um, way of dealing in business in this country with, with cars. You get a new part on your car. So even if you've got your eight-year-old BMW being placed, I want a new BMW wing, I want a new BMW headlight, and I want a new BMW bonnet. I don't want non-OE, and I don't want second-hand, I want new. Because we've always done uh, a new for old on cars with parts. So I think there is a, an unjustified suspicion from um, policyholders that putting a second-hand recycled or uh, reclaimed part is somehow deep... Um, devaluing their vehicle when very often that reclaimed part will be a better condition part a better part than the one on the car but they don't understand it fully the next reason why not fit recycled parts 41 percent work provider resistance and that's i think because work providers fear policyholder resistance 33 percent was poor availability of the reclaimed parts 23 percent poor quality of the reclaimed parts and lastly, 13% delivery delays in getting reclaimed parts. So if I'm looking, if I was going to be very bold and try and give any advice to the reclaimed parts industry, there's, it's hard to do something about policyholder resistance and work provider resistance. That's, that's a bigger picture almost. Poor availability, poor quality and delivery delays are the things that is very much in the direct control of the, of the reclaimed parts industry. Mm -hmm. Delivery delays, if I order a new um, bumper for, for the BMW, or even if I order a non-OE um, bumper for the BMW from LKQ, for example, I will almost certainly get it the next day. Parts availability is, is normally great, and it's maximum 24 hours. That doesn't tend to be generally the case with reclaimed parts. Yeah. It's also, generally speaking, much harder to find who's got the reclaimed parts in stock. Whereas I just ring up my BMW dealer, he will have it. If he hasn't got it, he will be able to still get it within that 24 hour period. The poor quality of reclaimed parts uh, is a historic thing because we haven't had a standard for reclaimed parts in the industry. Um, various attempts have been made over the years, looking at the American standard, which I'm familiar with and I was involved with, trying to bring it to the, to the UK for one of the pilot programs. But there it's very hard because one man's dent is another man's ding is another man's 
it's, it's very hard on that. And um, poor availability, I've touched on already, but um, the most commonly fitted parts in an accident repair are frontal parts, and the fewest parts are available on recycled, reclaimed is frontal parts for the very yeah. nature of it. So yeah. availability isn't always there. And the bit that we didn't include in there, but is very important for everybody involved, is the economics of it. Mm -hmm. Because is it does it economically work to receive a red door for the for your blue BMW? What are the costs then of painting that door? Um, uh, if the cost of the door is so high compared to a non-OE, hmm. it frankly just doesn't work. Yeah, and does this does reclaim parts put um, the the collision repair centre in a difficult situation because they're dealing with the vehicle owner on one hand and they're dealing with the insurer on the other hand who is paying who is their customer yeah. uh, that's a question every body shop asks virtually every day of themselves is the customer the person driving the car is the customer the person paying the bill who, who, which is the insurance company and and very often the two don't coincide because the insurance company wants recycled or non-oe parts fitted and the driver owner of the vehicle wants new parts new OE parts fitted and um, the, I, I'm afraid the body shop is often the, the poor sod in the center of it all um, who has to explain to the policy holder that um, your insurer has told us to fit a reclaimed part to your vehicle and then the policy holder goes mental about it you can't do that and well, of course the reality is they can because every insurance policy I've seen motor insurance policy for the last three years has included in the terms and conditions which none of us read that we repair your your car frankly using any parts we see fit new oe non-oe or reclaimed parts hmm. um, none of us read those terms and conditions um, but so they're doing it the insurance ombudsman will allow it now we have to put a few caveats in there of course you can't fit a reclaimed part that's older than the vehicle or in poorer condition than the part that you've taken off um, so you need to have provenance, you need to know what vehicle the reclaimed part came from and you need to know that that was a, a, a newer vehicle than the vehicle um, that it's being fitted, fitted to so that you're not decreasing the value, value of, that, of that vehicle um, and you need to ensure that we keep very clear of any safety related items. Um, I cannot at the moment see any situation where in an insurance repair they would approve fitment of anything related to safety, such as secondhand sensors, secondhand airbags, secondhand brake components. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a big no-no because of the unknown risk. Absolutely, absolutely, completely agree. Okay, now <clears throat> looking forward, looking ahead, looking. And can I just add one thing? Yeah, Sorry sure. to interrupt you. Yeah. I, I think it is a completely different situation if it is the owner repairing their own car which is legally allowed in this country absolutely and when i was at university with my my little mini I, my mini was kept going on secondhand part, parts down down at the scrapyard as it was in those days these and there the owner is completely taking the liability on themselves i mean there was no safety items on a mini other than the brake i suppose but, but that's quite a different situation so i'm not saying the safety related items could, can never and should never be sold by a salvage agent yeah. i'm talking about here specifically about an insurance claim quite different if the policyholder themselves it's their own car they want to fit them to their own car that's yeah that's their liability yeah 
and, and, and knowing my minis, the brakes on the mini are a little bit dubious anyway. So whether they're safety or not is another matter. And <laughs> <laughs> drum brakes, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you're going back. Now you're going back. Okay. So looking forward, looking ahead, what future opportunities do you see for the collision repair industry? Um, you know, <clears throat> and and is your crystal ball working? <clears throat> what's it going to look like in two yeah, years, five years, or ten years time? What what's what's your your opinion on on future? I think the the groups that we have are going to get bigger. I think it's very hard for single site body shops um, to succeed in the insurance market. I think there is an opportunity, a big, a big opportunity um, for economy type repair shops, which are for work which comes below the excess level that the policyholder has. And one thing we have seen is uh, excess is increasing as premiums have increased and more and more people go to the price comparison websites. There you can play with a little slider and increase your voluntary excess and that reduces your premium. So a lot of people now have taken a five, six hundred pound voluntary excess and then there's a 250 pound compulsory uh, excess and now they've got the first 850 pounds to pay of a repair. So a lot of people won't make a claim then because they'll lose their no claims bonus, premiums will go up for the next year. So I think there's a great opportunity there for um, repairers and I have to say uh, um, re salvage agents, recycled parts in that market. Because the, in that market, the, the owner is a quite a different beast. They're very happy to accept reclaimed parts because it can keep their bill down. They just want a low priced repair job done well, the paint's got to match uh, and the quality's got to be there, but they're quite happy to have a second-hand BMW fitted to their BMW rather than, than a new one because they're paying for it or to, to keep it below the excess. So I think that's an opportunity that we will see going forward for the repair industry. I can see it dividing a bit between those that are doing sal uh, in, so sorry, insurance work and those that are, are doing retail work. Um, and I can also see a big continued growth in van repairs this is not commercial vehicle repairs vans we all know van market has exploded in the last four or five years as everything is delivered online from uh, amazon and the like and under our current coronavirus period that's um, increased yet again because we're not allowed to go out to the shops still under lockdown and i think people are going to get used to shopping online and therefore pop things being delivered and that's white van man again so with that, the van man has a different requirement i can see overnight repairs happening there for, for um, van man so they can deliver during the day and their vans repaired overnight, if it's drivable, of course. I can certainly see body shops in the, in the future operating split shifts, um, so uh, a morning and an afternoon and an evening shift, something like, like that. Um, a, that would help with social distancing if the viral problem continues for, 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 many, year, for many years, but it can also help you sweat the asset. If you can get the staff, you can sweat the asset and, and you can certainly get jobs out of, out of your body shop quicker. And the thing that we know as a nation, we want everything quicker. Um, we expect to order today and it's delivered tomorrow. Not, uh, it's not amazing, it's just what we expect. In fact, we now expect to order at 10 o'clock at night and get it the next day. Mm -hmm. So why does my car still take 10 days on average, key to key time, to get repaired? Yeah. I don't understand that. Why can't that be done in a day or two days? So um, there's a big pressure on that key to key time, has been for the last few years and will continue, because that's what the policyholder wants. Mm -hmm. I think I would just emphasize one little area in there. The policyholder wants their car repaired quickly once it's gone in for repair. 
They don't, it's not, don't necessarily want it repaired quickly from the day of the accident because we know next week we're off on holiday in the car or we, you know, something's happening. I don't want my courtesy car for that period, so I'll keep my car. Bearing in mind, most cars are still drivable after yeah. an accident. Yeah. Um, so uh, one has to look at the difference between you know, claim to, to car being repaired and key to key time from the time it's in the body shop and out the body shop. Um, for the reclaimed uh, salvage industry, I think there are huge opportunities if that industry can get its act together. And that has to be in terms of pricing, in terms of um, parts availability and delivery. Delivery's got a lot better. Uh, I think it's still not right, but it's got a lot better. The, the issue at the moment is it's very easy for me as a body shop to order a BMW bumper. Uh, it goes to my BMW dealer, and if he hasn't got it, it's normally in stock at BMW HQ in the UK, so I'll still get it within 24 hours. But I can do one, one email, one phone call. That's not currently the situation necessarily with recycled parts because we have many different providers of recycled parts. And often you have to put in your request for the part, and then they come back two hours, three hours, five hours, six hours, like, oh, no, we haven't got it. Yeah. And then you've got to start again. And, yeah. and that just doesn't work for an insurance job because there's so much under pressure of key to key time. Would work fine potentially for a, a, um, a job where the um, policyholder, the customer's paying for it themselves because um, all they're interested in is a low price repair. It doesn't work in the insurance industry. So they need to get that together. The other issue is the insurance market is totally dominated by computerized estimating. And um, you have, in my view, for really to take off, you have to have the reclaimed parts available via the computerized estimating systems. And the issue there, of course, is the way that the parts are supplied. My experience of the reclaimed industry is that it's normally supplied as a complete front bumper, a complete door. Well, the vehicle manufacturers don't have a part number for that, nor do the, the uh, estimating systems. They have the 36 parts that make up the front bumper, from the brackets and the molding strip and the fog light and the fog light surround, etc. So you can't do a direct comparison from the estimating system because they're to the reclaim because they're provided in different situations and different. It's exactly the same for a door. Most re, re, um, salvage agents will supply the complete door, a complete door assembly. No vehicle manufacturer's got a part number for that because they don't sell a complete door assembly. They sell a door shell and a glass and a winder regulator, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that can be sorted, but it needs sorting. So that, <coughs> excuse me, automatically you do your uh, computerized estimate. Let's be honest, 90 plus percent of them are out of text. And frankly, the system can come back and say, do you want an OE part, a non-OE part or a reclaim part for this? And then you choose which you want uh, with the pricing in, in, is given. And um, then you'll make, you know, the repairer can make a sensible and the insurer can make a sensible decision. Hmm. Oh, brilliant. That's amazing. And, for, you know, for anybody... Can I add one other point, Andy, yeah, sure. if I may, just on, it's a very important thing for the reclaimed industry, is pricing as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I had an example <clears throat> a few years ago when one of our repairer members had the opportunity with a, a fleet to use reclaimed parts. And they want to use it for, 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 for uh, um, uh, green purposes or a, a green type of company. And so I met with um, uh, an, uh, two or three uh, um, very good salvage agents, uh, names are irrelevant, and um, with, with the uh, um, 
repairer. And the problem was on pricing because the salvage guys would not give a price. They wouldn't say it's going to be 60% of the OE price or 50% or 40 quid. Well, it's spot price. It depends how many bonnets we've got in. If we've got too many Peugeot 205 bonnets in, the price goes down. If we haven't got enough, the price goes up. And I understand it's that dynamic pricing, but that doesn't work for 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 modern body shops on contracts. It just doesn't work. You 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 need to. It's not. We need to find out the price each time. We know the price of a BMW OE bonnet, and we know we get twenty percent discount on it. So that's something I think the reclaimed market needs to look at if it wants to go into the insurance sector. Absolutely, absolutely. And anybody listening to this podcast, just rewind the last sort of two minutes and re-listen to it because. There's important information there that you really need to, uh, to to go back over and make notes on. Absolutely amazing. Now, you know, continuing this looking forward, continuing looking forward, um, is there any advice that you can give to young and aspiring leaders who want to grow and develop their leadership skills in the collision repair industry? What a great question. It's a fantastic industry. I, I love it to bits. And I've... I've, I've uh, I've loved it for 32 years since I started in 1988 at Abitex. There's some great people in it. Um, the advice I would give, and I would give it for any young person in any industry, first off is work hard. Hard work gets you places. Uh, and, and secondly, whilst you may think some of the people in the, in, in the industry, I'm going to use a are old farts actually a lot of them aren't they're actually very knowledgeable people and you do well to listen um, and learn from what they do read wide, wise, uh, widely, I'm so sorry, read widely, read everything you can get your hands on about the industry, learn about the history, look at what's happening to the industry in, in other countries. There are many things that we do better in the UK than other countries in the collision repair industry. There are other things which we don't do as well. So read widely and learn from that. And don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm. The, the best business lesson I ever had was don't be afraid to ask questions. The only stupid question is the one you don't ask. Yes, um, And I'm particularly good at asking stupid questions because if I don't understand something, I will ask for it. And normally people are very happy to tell you and, and um, they don't take the mickey out of you. They normally uh, burst in with pride. Oh, I know more than you. I'm happy to tell you all about it. Yeah, um, and, and that way you need to just ensure you really know what you're talking about rather than think you know what you're talking about. Oh, amazing, really, really good answer. Thank you for that. And is there one thing, one thing that the UK government could do that would have the biggest benefit to the collision repair industry? And, and what would that be and why? Um, it would be to license repair shops, yeah. license body shops, collision repair centres. Um, it does seem you know, always amazing to me that the cars are quite rightly homologated. They have to meet type approval um, and um, they don't have to, but they all try to get the Euro NCAP five-star safety rating from the crash tests. And then there is absolutely anybody, we could have Andy and Dave's body shop, and we could legally, legitimately repair a car that then goes out and falls apart at the next impact. Um, and I just don't understand how that is allowed. You have to be licensed. I do a little quiz when I speak on stage, and I, and I say, spot the odd one out, and there's a, a florist, a, a pet groomers, a chiropodist, et cetera, et cetera, a butchers, and a body shop. And the one odd one out is the body shop, because that's the only one that doesn't need to be licensed. Yeah. You have to be licensed to be a nightclub bouncer, to cut someone's hair, to run a pet shop. Um, you don't have to be licensed to repair a motor car. Amazing. 
when you put it in those terms, that is amazing, isn't it? That is incredible that we would. I think more people are probably killed by cars falling apart, uh, badly repaired, than, 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 you know, are killed in a hairdresser's. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> not that you need one so much, Andy. No, 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 no. <laughs> not now, not now, not now. And one final question, and we ask all our guests on the podcast this final question. What was your first car, and do you have any special memories of that car? Oh, God, I, I mentioned it already as it happened. Yes, I yeah. do. It was a, 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 a green uh, Mini, and I even remember the number plates. The only number plate cars I remember, MLX 495L, and uh, Mini 850 with a long gear lever that disappeared down into the bulkhead and uh, wind up uh, sliding windows, sorry, sliding windows, didn't have wind up windows, sliding windows. Um, and I just have such great, I had that from when I passed my driving test at 17, and I had that all the way through university until I started my first job at Thorn EMI who'd sponsored me. And just going round, went down to Spain in it and, and, and many holidays in it with, with, with friends, just an amazing car. Brilliant, that's incredible, incredible. And uh, I can just imagine what your ears were like after driving to Spain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. It was a noisy little thing. <laughs> a buzz box. But my goodness, it handled so well. Yeah, handled so well. Incredible. Incredible. Brilliant. Fantastic. Now, how do we contact you or, or find out more about ABP? What's, uh, what's the best way? Is it through the website? We have a website, absolutely, www.abpclub.com, or you can email me directly, david at abpclub.com. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Brilliant. David, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, and as I said before we started recording, this is 30 minutes of con you know, consultation for me. I, I learned so much. It's brilliant. But thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And, and, and thank you to the whole um, Reclaim Hearts Market. Thank you. That was amazing. A big thank you to David for his time and his knowledge. We are all better for it. You will find full details of how to contact ABP in the show notes. And there's also details there of how to access the ABP Industry Yearbook and also the ABP State of the Industry Report. Please don't forget to take the time to like and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and give us a rating. Depollution podcasts are released every Tuesday.